Well, a couple of weeks ago, I announced to you that on this Sunday, I would be preaching a message about healing grace for America. Our nation has been seriously and sorely divided in ways that have shocked me, things that I thought were in our past. As we sang that song this morning, and Daniel is just so multi-talented, playing the piano this morning and leading from the piano over here. As he's saying those lines, shackled by ghosts from the past, I thought, there's just no need for our nation. There's no need for a church. There's no need for you to be shackled by any ghost from your past. That's the power of redemption. Last weekend, Becky and I took the weekend off, and we visited Philadelphia. You know, in all my travels and journeys around the world, I'd never been to Philadelphia. And by the way, I ran the Rocky Steps. I just had to do that. And I got to the top and did the whole deal, you know, and Becky got it all. Oh, thank you. I did run them. I didn't walk them. Our district superintendent was wanting to know, did I run them, you know, but I, I did run those steps. But thanks to Motrin, I was able to make it up there. <laughs> we worshiped with a wonderful congregation last weekend. I had lunch with their pastor and just had a wonderful time there. And then we had lunch at a Jewish deli. I was expecting a really great Reuben or a pastrami sandwich. He's one of the directors and executives for the American Bible Society that helped us when we were doing the 1996 Centennial Olympics in Atlanta. The American Bible Society was such a tremendous help to us and, and we gave away quarter of a million dollars worth of literature that people literally were coming up on the streets and begging us for that was worth much more than that because of the generosity of the American Bible Society and Light for the Lost. As we went through the Faith and Discovery Museum that the American Bible Society sponsors, I was just taken with the story of the slaves who fought for America. I was taken with the story of the Jews who fought for the liberation of the United States. I was taken with the story of even though there were ghosts from our past that shackled us, that we hadn't fully achieved that more perfect union for liberty for everyone. We then went to the National Revolutionary War Museum, and I hope I don't sound like a tour guide for Philly, but you really ought to go. Went to Constitution Hall. But the thing that I wanted to be in Philly for that weekend was the reading or the reenactment of the 246th reading of the Declaration of Independence. And there as we stood in the crowd and all the reenactors, the separatists and the loyalists, those of Baptist persuasion that pled with Thomas Jefferson that the church would be separate from the state, not that the state would interfere with the church, but that the church would not would would not support the, the state would not support the church, but the church could be independent and free and not a government-sponsored church. We saw how powerful that was as the loyalists because most of the pastors of the churches, the, the, the Church of England churches in America, they received their salaries from the government, so they were preaching loyalty to the king while it was the independent churches, local churches like this one, who was preaching about the tyranny that was happening and taking place. As I listen to them, and as I have read many times, I have the sermons of the Mathers, I have the sermons of many of the Puritans that I have read and poured over. I've always marveled at how influential 
The church was, local congregations were, in the establishment of the independence of the United States. It was an amazing visit, capped off by a tour of Valley Forge on our way home Monday. And as we toured that place that's associated in our nation's history with suffering, I was once again taken in by the comfort and the care and the influence of local churches and pastors and preachers like George Whitfield. Our national narrative cannot be shared. Now listen, this is important. Our national narrative cannot be shared without the influence of the body of Christ. Not the government-sponsored church, but the church that rose up and said, we want to be free from all shackles. We want to be free to express ourselves. We saw this later in World War II where Hitler said, we can control the pastors if we can control their salaries. And so it was the confessing church from World War II that had so many martyrs because they refused to be loyal to what Adolf Hitler wanted him to do. And so again, they were establishing underground churches. These churches and their pastors were intensely, and I wrote these words because I want you to get them, they were intensely local-oriented. In other words, the pastors in Massachusetts weren't preaching about what was going on in South Carolina. The pastors in Georgia were not preaching about what was going on in New York. Frankly, they didn't care. They saw themselves as 13 individual colonies, just as we see ourselves as Michiganders or Ohioans or, if you're favored by God, you would be called a Georgian. And so there was all this growing up that we had to do and as a nation to become one people under God. A number of years ago, when I was working on my master's, one of my professors who went on to become a very, very successful author introduced me to the poet author, Wendell Berry. Wendell Berry writes a lot of poetry, a lot of novels, our children have listened to some of his stories on vacation, audiobooks in the car. By the way, that's a good parenting tip if you're driving with your kids this summer. Get audiobooks and play them for them. They'll love it. But Wendell Berry has cared for a small farm in Kentucky for almost 50 years. He stewards the land. Eugene Peterson, the translator of the message and the author of many other books, says that Wendell Berry helped him to understand what being a pastor was all about. He said, whenever I read Barry, he said, I substitute the word farm for parish. I substitute the word farmer for pastor. He says, I want to look at pastoring my congregation the way that Wendell Berry looked at stewarding his land. How can I be intensely local? How can I be aware of what God is doing in them? He said, how can I be present teaching, preaching, scripture as well as I can and how can I be honest with them, not doing anything to interfere with the growth that God is bringing in their life? As I thought about all that Eugene Peterson wrote in commenting about the legacy that Wendell Berry was leaving, I thought about what the Bible often says about the Lord's Day. I wrote one of our men this week, and I said, do you think that Van Horn Road will be open and the road crews won't be working on the Lord's Day? And as soon as I wrote that, I thought, I shouldn't say that. He probably won't even understand. So I just erased it and put Sunday. And he wrote me back and said, I don't know. So I was so thrilled this morning when I heard they weren't working because 
For us as Christians, this is the Lord's Day. Yesterday was the day our Jewish friends celebrated as the Sabbath. Friday is the day our Muslim friends worshiped. And so I ask myself, are we willing to be quiet and to listen? As your pastor for 23 years, I've always tried to pay careful attention to the Word of God and not get caught up in what's happening in not only the local news, but national news or state news. But I've always known this, God is at work doing things in your life, in our church's life, and in our community, and in our state, and in our nation that I'm not aware of. So I've always asked the Lord each and every day, open my eyes to see what I'm not aware of, to see what I don't know. Lord, help me to be intensely local like those early Puritan pastors were. The Georgian didn't need to be concerned about what was going on in Boston because what was happening in Savannah was bad enough when the British captured it. But as a pastor, I can't be naive. Early on in my end, my ministry, naivety almost caused me to leave the ministry. It threatened my calling. It threatened my faith because I came to the point where I told Becky and I told my parents and I told our district superintendent, if this is what the church was, I wasn't going to be a part of it. I called my scholarship counselor from the University of Georgia and said, can I have my scholarship back? <clears throat> and he said, of course, we'll be glad to welcome you back. My dad set me down. I'll never forget it in front of our fireplace. And he wisely talked to me about people. He said, son, if you expect Christians not to sin, you're going to end up being very disappointed for the rest of your life. He said, look at your own face in the mirror. <laughs> My dad had a way of being particularly blunt. He said, but if you can understand the concepts of grace, like I remember my dad wasn't a pastor. He wasn't a preacher. He was a farmer. He was a man that understood what Barry was talking about in submitting himself to the land. And I came to realize that even though God calls us saints in his word, we sin, we rebel, we do, pardon me, sweetheart, we do stupid things. I said that at the dinner table this week and got chewed out by my wife, my son, and my daughter. I have lived long enough, though, to see people with courage and grace and love restore those who've sinned, restore those who have been broken by sin. And every single day I see that grace manifested. I think of a man in our church, it's a passionate follower of Christ today, raising a godly family. And I never share a story without having permission to share it. Most of them are anonymous. <coughs> but I remember the, sitting with him and trying to talk to him about giving his life to Jesus, and he just stopped me and put both hands up, and he says, Pastor Clanton, I know you love me, but you need to understand something. I love women a lot more than I love Jesus, and frankly, I'm not ready to give up sin yet. I respected him for that. I told him a few things I thought he needed to know about his intense love for women. And later on, I was with him when he gave his heart to Jesus Christ. He's not the same man he used to be. He doesn't live there anymore. All things have passed. All things have become new. I've seen God restore homes that infidelity, poor stewardship have almost destroyed. I've seen lives that were changed. 
I've seen God's grace change individuals. I've seen God's grace change our congregation. I've seen God's grace change my life. And I want to talk to you for just a few minutes about patriotism and nationalism and what the Bible has to say about that. So would you stand with me out of respect for the word of the Lord? Now, all glory to God who is able to make you strong, just as my good news says. This message about Jesus Christ has revealed His plan for you Gentiles, a plan kept secret from the beginning of time. <clears throat> but now as the prophets foretold, and as the eternal God has commanded, this message is made known to all Gentiles everywhere. That's people like you and me that weren't Jewish. So that they too might believe and obey Him. All glory to the only wise God through Jesus Christ forever and ever. Amen. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, give us eyes to see with. Give us ears to hear with. Lord, speak to our heart about how you can use the church today to bring healing grace to America. Lord, we've often asked you to make us, Lord, a house of bread for those who are hungry. We've asked you, Lord, to make us a house of prayer because we know it's not trite to say that prayer changes things. But we also make, yes, have asked you to make us a house of grace so that people's lives can be transformed and changed by the amazing grace of Jesus Christ, I pray. Lord, we pray today, help us not just to listen as a church, but to listen as individuals and to say, speak to me, Lord, for it's in Christ's name I ask. Amen and amen. God bless you. You can be seated. I'm a patriot, not ashamed to say that, but patriotism is love of our country. Patriotism is different from nationalism. Nationalism is an argument about how we define our country. Patriotism is good because patriotism involves intensely about our stewardship of the part of the world that God has asked us or that God has sovereignly placed us in. I'm a steward, you're a steward of America. We're a one nation, one people under God indivisible. We're a nation that believes that every vote counts, that people matter. We also know that the Bible teaches us that all of God's creation is good. And if I understand that all of God's creation is good and I understand patriotism in a biblical way, then it helps me to appreciate my place in it just as Adam and Eve appreciated their place for a while in the Garden of Eden. It wasn't until they listened to another voice that they failed to appreciate their place in it. I don't know why I was born in America. I've been in some of the poorest parts of the world. I've sat in some of the poorest nations that have nothing compared to what we have in this country. And I've asked myself, why the grace for my family and I to be a part of this great nation? 
It helps me to do the good work of cultivating and building. It's why a number of years ago I preached a message about why we want to give back to our community rather than just work and take jobs in our community and not satisfy ourselves by saying we pay taxes, but we work for the good of the city and the land and the country that we live in. Nationalism wants to define the nation. Nationalism wants to define us by language. Nationalism wants to define us by coherent, coherent cultural groups. It wants to define us by things that aren't necessarily biblical, but things that are intensely regional to us. Nationalism even says that government should promote and protect our nation's cultural standard. Which leads me to something that has become very dangerous and affecting the church that I don't find in the preaching of those early pastors in Puritan America. And let's be honest, a lot of people love to throw rocks at the Puritans, but they've never read the Puritans. It's like when somebody says to me, well, the Bible says you can't eat shrimp, or the Bible says you're supposed to stone your kids. They haven't read their whole Bible when they said that. They're trying to define Christianity or Judaism. They haven't read the whole Bible. By the way, in case you're interested, Jesus did declare all foods clean, although I still can't imagine St. Peter having a pork chop. <laughs> but boy, he didn't know what he missed. Christian nationalists believe that America is defined by Christianity and that the government should keep it that way and by force if necessary. History has taught us that any time the church and the government get in bed, and it's what those early pastors knew in America and what they wrote Thomas Jefferson about, that both become corrupted. There has to be the freedom that both of us have. So let me just speak for a moment that, and tell you that Christianity, biblical Christianity, is focused on the person and the life and the work of Jesus. This is what unites us as Jews and Gentiles, according to the Bible. This is what unites us as men and women, according to the Bible. This is what removes those walls of separation as a matter of fact, Christianity unites us with people who are not Americans around the world so that wherever I've traveled, I found brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who welcome me in their homes and welcome me in their churches because although we may speak different languages and we may have different cultural values and we dress differently and we worship differently, we have been bound together by the Word of God and our faith in Jesus Christ. It's why our mission statement at Woodland Church simply says, and we live it out every day, celebrate God's love by persuading people to become passionate followers of Jesus Christ. Not forcing people, not cajoling people, but by persuading people of the truth, which means you and I have to prayerfully work at building those relationships. We have to be, as, as Eugene Peterson said, intensely local. Let me show you how the scriptures illustrates this in Revelation chapter 5 and verse 9. For you, speaking of Jesus, for you, Jesus, were slaughtered, and your blood is ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Lost people matter to God. 
Now stop and think about that for a moment. Lost people matter to God. And when Jesus wanted to illustrate this, he took a man that was traveling who was beset by bandits and the person that helped him was not the priest. The person that helped him was not the Levite, but the person that helped him was the most despised person of all. He was a Samaritan. And notice what he did. He gave up his privacy. He gave up his time. He gave up his finances. And he also put his reputation on the line, for he put him on his beast. He took him to an inn. He nursed his wounds. He poured the oil and the wine into them. And then evidently his name was good because his credit was good. He says, take care of him. When I return, if I owe you more, I'll pay it. And of course, in the story, you're led to believe that the good Samaritan was good to his word. Every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. Look at Revelation 7, 9. After this, I saw a vast crowd. Now, this is John's vision of heaven. Too great to count from every nation, tribe, and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb, and they were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands. Three things I want you to get here. It's vast. Heaven's going to be full. Hell's going to be full, but heaven's going to be fuller. They're from every nation, tribe, people, and language. But notice they're holding palm branches. And palm branches in the Bible were a symbol of victory. So when they were waving the palm branches as Jesus came into Jerusalem during Passion Week, as he's coming into Jerusalem, they're actually saying to Jesus, you are victorious. You and I, as we lifted our hands this morning, in effect, we're lifting palm branches to the Lord as we worshiped him. We're not only saying that Christ is victorious, but because Christ conquered sin, death, hell, and the grave, you and I live victoriously today as well. Now here's where Christian nationalists and the church of Christ disagree. Because God chose the church. God empowered the church with the presence of His Holy Spirit. Think about that. That God Himself lives and dwells among us, in us, so that we could share this good news, so that we could persuade people to become passionate followers of Christ. And not only that, that you and I would be empowered to live in the freedom that God gives us. It's not just that I am free, I am free to live in that freedom. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that this morning? Now, think about that. As I went to the Revolutionary War Museum and the Faith and Discovery Museum that the American Bible Society sponsored, two things stood out to me. The United States and Great Britain both reneged on their promises to slaves who fought in the Revolutionary War, told them they were free, but put them back in slavery. When Jesus saved you, he saved you. There is no mud on the wagon wheel. You are free to live and to be who God created you to be. Every man, every tribe, every nation will be there in heaven. And yet, Christianity is political. Because as Christians, we have as much right to be involved and to make our voice known. For us as passionate followers of Jesus Christ, life is sacred. Marriage is sacred. We make no bones about that. We get involved 
But we don't get involved in hateful ways. We don't get involved in angry ways. This week I had lunch with someone and something that was said that reminded me. One of my messages was taken to City Hall in Detroit. It was played for a group of people that had gathered to meet by a Democrat, Democratic politician that he and I meet from time to time. He called me that day and then later says, let's have lunch. I've got to tell you all about this. So when he finished playing the message, there was this one guy that was black, gay, and intensely liberal. And so my friend, the politician, looked at him and says, what do you think about this message? He says, well, I'm bothered by it. It was a message that I preached here on homosexuality and what the Bible says about it. He goes, what bothers you? He says, well, first of all, he says, the guy's white. Second of all, the guy's old. Third of all, he sounds like a southerner, and I don't know if any southerners are like. He says, finally, he's a conservative Christian. And yet after listening to that message, I think he and I could be friends, and that bothers me. <laughs> you see, there is a way to present and share the gospel where we persuade people, we celebrate the love of God. And we don't become condemning like I was naively becoming as a young, young pastor, getting trapped in legalism, that when people didn't live up to the standard 100%, do we sin? Yes. Are we sinless? No. But the longer we grow in Christ, we should sin less and less and less until that glorious day we stand in the presence of Christ and we sin no more. Hallelujah. Hallelujah! That's the word of the Lord. So as Christians involved in politics, we believe what the word of the Lord says in 1 Peter 2.17. Treat everyone you meet with dignity. The people you disagree with, the people you don't like, and yes, you can love some folks without liking them. There's a lot of folks I love, but I just don't particularly like and don't look at me so spiritual because you are lying if you say you're not the same way. I know this because when football season comes around here, Wolverines and Spartans are actually mean to one another. I know this because when Georgia loses, you guys all come to me with glee and say, Georgia lost yesterday. Hypocrites. Treat everyone you meet with dignity, love your spiritual family, revere God, read this with me, respect the government. Read that again, respect the government. The government was Nero at that time. The government was capturing Christians because it was the politically popular thing to do, burning them alive, making them lamp torches, and because they would sing praises while they were being martyred to the Lord, Nero ordered that their lips be sewed shut before they were set alight with tar so they could not sing the praises of God. And here the Bible tells us we are to respect people like that. I want to pray the imprecatory prayers of the Psalms upon them. Lord, break their teeth, crush their skulls. And yet, I'm taught to respect the government. 
You see, this is the difference between Christianity and Christian nationalism. It says we must force people. So what do we do with this? Real quickly this morning, I would say to you first, as your pastor, remain close to Jesus. Remain close to Jesus despite all that's happening in America today. The Bible says if we come close to God in James chapter 4 and verse 8, if we come close to God, God will come close to you. You are more persuasive when you're full of God's Spirit. You are more persuasive when you are full of God's love. You are more persuasive when you are full of God's grace. When you are abrasive, you will never be persuasive. And when you allow God's grace to transform you, and there's just something about being in the presence of Jesus in a daily altar time, in a daily quiet time, where you come into his presence and you kneel before him and you lift your hands to the Lord and you give him thanks for all that he's blessed you with, God says, I will draw close to you. In 1 John chapter 2, in verse 28, listen to what Pastor John says. And now, children, stay with Christ. Live deeply in Christ. Then we'll be ready for him when he appears, ready to receive him with open arms, with no cause for red-faced guilt or lame excuses when he arrives. When I was taking Greek, Professor Glandon looked at us one day and he, as we were translating a difficult portion of Scripture. He said, I'm fully persuaded there are going to be many people who wake up in heaven that are surprised that they're there because of the false teaching they've received about sinless perfection. He said, but I'm also going to be, I'm also confident there are going to be a lot of people who wake up in hell who are surprised that they're there because they've trusted in their good works to save them. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Nothing but the grace of Jesus. And if that still doesn't thrill your soul, you're not living deeply in Christ. Secondly, take advantage of trouble to become stronger in Christ. Rather than becoming angry and rather than ranting and rather than letting your blood pressure go up and letting ulcers develop in your stomach and saying we should just withdraw and become monks and cloister ourselves away, let's let the trouble make us stronger as we seek God. Many of you, you've become stronger because you've gone through cancer. Many of you, you've become stronger when you lost your job and your faith grew and you knew you had no one to turn to but Jesus and the body of Christ. Many of you have become stronger when a child died or when you lost a spouse. Why should it be any different when things have gone awry in our nation? Let's let our troubles, let's use this to our advantage. The Bible says in James chapter 1 and verse 3, listen, you know that when your faith is tested, it stirs up power within you to endure all things. Now notice that. It stirs up power. I went back and just redid all these words in my Greek languages, and yep, that's correct. What God is doing is stirring up power within you. He's blowing on those coals of trouble to stir up power so that you can endure. And then as your endurance grows even stronger, look at, look at, 
It will release perfection into every part of your being until there's nothing missing and lacking. Oh, I like that. How many of you know that feeling when you get done with a job and you go, it's finished, it's complete, it's right. Doesn't that feel good? I mean, it just really, it's just that it's finished. Thirdly, upgrade your habit of loving people. I've never met a Christian yet that was, didn't say, I love people. I love my enemies. And yet at times, we don't even treat one another the way we should. So sometimes, like software on my computer needs an upgrade. My Mac is approaching 10 years old now. And I've noticed the fan started working hard, and I've noticed it gets hot in my lap. I called my oldest son, who is such a computer geek, and he goes, Dad, it's a Mac. You should come back to PC. Well, that went nowhere, because like Paul Gorky, he doesn't know what he's talking about. So I went to the Mac store. He said, your computer is talking to you. He said, stop upgrading your software. I said, really? He goes, yes, because the new computers are designed to run so much more efficient, so much powerful, it takes so much more. And every time you upgrade your software, your computer's having to work harder to keep with it. He says, just stay with the old stuff. He didn't try to sell me a computer. I said, you must not work on a commission. He goes, no, we, none of us work on a commission. I said, well, you didn't try to sell me a computer. He says, you've got a Mac. It still works. That wasn't a paid advertisement. <laughs> But I came home thinking about that. I want to upgrade my computer now. It's 10 years old, sweetheart. You need to give in. I, I, I want new hardware. Because if the old is making things run slow and causing my lap to be hot, what happens when I get a new computer? She whistles, she sings, she hums. What happens when you get a new heart in Jesus? You find yourself loving people. We all need revival from time to time. We need God to touch us. Revive us again, O Lord. Pour your spirit out upon us. Help us to express the passionate love of Jesus Christ for the whole world. Somebody say amen, amen, and amen this morning. You see, loving people will change you. If you'll look with me at Hosea chapter 10 and verse 12, and I know for those in the back I'm skipping over some stuff, but loving people will change you. Plant the seeds of doing what is right, and then you will harvest the fruit of your faithful love. It's time to turn to me. When you do, I will come and shower my blessings upon you. I don't know about you, but I could use a shower of blessing. Could you today? I could use a shower of blessing. I've got a grandson that needs a miracle in his life. I've got a daughter-in-law with a tumor in her brain. I have friends today that need a miracle of God. I could use the shower of blessings upon my church and upon my family and upon my community. And God says, if I plant the seeds of doing what is right, justly loving people, then I will harvest the fruit of faithful love. Let's give him another hand of praise for that, would you? Hallelujah. But it also means love practically. That's why we ask you to help with the food pantry. It's why we give so much to missions. It's why we feed children every day around the world. It's why we feed people locally. And right here, it come back to that good Samaritan. He took out two silver coins. 
And he gave them to the owner of the inn and says, take care of him. When I return, I will pay you back for any extra expense you may have. You see, there are things I can do locally, but there are things that I can't do in Ethiopia where you and I have built churches and schools and I've had the privilege of preaching. There are things that we've done in Kenya that are sending people out around the world. There are things that we've done in Argentina, in Uruguay. There are things we've done in India and Bangladesh. And I could go on with story after story because we can't be there and maybe we're not as up to date on what's happening. We've sent thousands of dollars to Convoy of Hope to help with Ukraine. We may can't be there, but we can empower those that are there. That's what I mean by loving practically. So as we get ready to pray, remember this. God's blessings are infinite. God was kind. And he chose me to tell the Gentiles because of Christ. Would you read this? Put it up on the screen if you would, please. Because of Christ, there are blessings that cannot be measured. Would you read that last phrase with me? There are blessings that cannot be measured. Say that again. There are blessings that cannot be measured. Would you say it one more time? There are blessings that cannot. Woodland can only bless if God blesses you. America can only bless others if God blesses America. And we need God to bless America with healing grace today and restore our nation. And then secondly, strength comes from God's grace in Christ. Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7 says, Remember your leaders who taught you the word of God. Think of all the good that has come from their lives and follow the example of their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So do not be extracted by strange new ideas. Your strength comes from God's grace. Dave Reaver, the Vietnam veteran that you probably heard on Billy Graham Crusades, after hearing my story, got in touch with me, and then we did a six-week tour together. He pointed this scripture out to me, and he says, you need to tell that story over and over and over again. He said, just like I tell my story over and over again, you need to tell your story of faith over and over again to your children. This week, somebody called me and says, Pastor, when I remember what God has done in your life, it gives me strength. But when I die, I don't necessarily want you remembering the story and the miracle, the restoration of my physical health. I want you to remember the story of God's grace. Was I intensely local? Did I pastor well? Did I preach well? Was I aware of what God was doing in your life? Did I live in that freedom that Christ gave? In other words, was there authenticity about my life and not hypocrisy? One of the men in our church wrote a book for his grandchildren 
It's great. I don't have his permission to share it yet because he says it's just for his grandchildren. But it is so funny. And it really is a story of grace. I have laughed. I've said to my, listen to this. Listen to this. Sometimes Becky says, that sounds just that she called his name. So every once in a while in our family, we call his name and say, that's a story. Let me use the name Roger. That's a Roger story. And it's not his story, but we've seen something that reminds us about him. It's a Roger story. You have a story of God's amazing grace to your life. I want you to stand with me, and I want to pray for you this morning. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, those early preachers, those early Puritan preachers, they celebrated marriage. They celebrated the nation, the faith. They celebrated sexuality. They were not the prudes that people make them out to be. And Christians are not the prudes that sometimes people make them out to be. And true Christians are not abrasive people. They're people of grace. Those early preachers believed that Jews should be free to worship as they should, as they felt free to worship. In those days, the word Muslim was spelled Muslim, M-O-S-L-E-M. Muslims should be free to worship the way they want to. And those who choose not to worship should be allowed to live in freedom as well. They weren't perfect, but the nation wasn't held shackled by the ghost of its past, and it can't be held shackled today. We have to have a revival of God's healing grace. And it starts with you and me. Paul exhorts us, pray for kings and all who are in authority so we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. I'm just going to ask you right now, for just a moment, would you quietly pray for leaders everywhere that like me as a pastor, like Wendell Berry as a farmer, they will be faithful to a stewardship that has been given to them. Would you ask God to make you a part of the healing grace that our nation needs? And would you ask God to help you to respect and to love people that you disagree with strongly, convictionally, to respect and to love someone doesn't mean that you accept their views, but it does mean you treat them with the respect and the love that God has for all of us. And while Christians are praying, let me talk to those of you that haven't crossed the line and those of you listening today that maybe you haven't crossed the line and given your heart to Jesus. Would you today, 
You've watched for a reason. You're, if this is later in the week and you're watching, you've, you're watching for a reason, especially if you've gotten this far. God loves you. You really need to know there really is a God and all of us one day will stand before Him. And you don't have to stand afraid, red-faced, making lame excuses. But you can trust what Jesus did for you at Calvary, what He did for me at Calvary. That His blood washed away my sins. He washes away your sins if you put your faith in Him. So if that's you, would you pray with me right now here in the sanctuary or at line watching at home? Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for not giving me what I do deserve. But you have given me what I don't deserve. Forgiveness of my sins and my trespasses. The opportunity for a fresh start in life. The opportunity for all things to be done away with. And all things to become new. I believe your word. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, born for me. And that he died for my sins. You raised him on the third day. And that one day he's coming back again. So, Father, as much as I know how, I commit my life to you today. In Jesus' holy name. Amen, amen, and amen. Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for those that have prayed with us today? Now may the Lord bless you with an understanding today that when you pray, your prayers are more powerful than any political action. That the affairs of the church and the affairs of the world and the affairs of your family are not decided in your bedroom, in your coffee shops, or in boardrooms. But the unseen hand of God is at work. But God chooses to work through your prayers. May He help you to grasp just how great and wide and deep His love is for you. And that when you pray, He both hears and He answers. Go in the peace and grace of our Lord and Savior today. Amen and amen. God bless you. You're dismissed. <laughs>